Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have discovered the best game ever is throwing grass at a dog's face. Who knew? I mean, I've seen the photos, I believe you, but the best game ever is backgammon. It does make this noise though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and ever since I heard a Bob Monkhouse joke in the Joker trailer, I can't get the image of him as the Joker out of my mind. Does the Joker have a mother-in-law? <laughs> uh, he's not mahogany. <laughs> oh, just stained to a rich teak. But it's weird because they use what I think is probably Monkhouse's best joke and then it doesn't get a laugh and that's apparently one of the things that turns him bad and it seems a slight plot flaw to me. That's harsh because yeah. for all of Monkhouse's flaws, very funny man. Yeah. Later on, we chat the truth about Essex girls with playwright and all-round top bird Sadie Hasler. Journalist Carrie Gracie tells us about that dispute over equal pay with the BBC and how it led her to write Equal, an urgent call to arms for women to fight for equal pay and for men to help them get it. You might have noticed Jen's not here as she's off on her holidays, the cheeky rascal. But you'll hear her in Jenny Off the Blocks where she's chatting to former England star Enia Luco about her memoir, They Don't Teach This. And we talk characters who make me TV smashingly angry as Dunleavy Does Dystopia does Never Let Me Go. But first, pro-rogue, rogue, rogue, your Brexit boat. At least there's t-shirts and a world on fire. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are hashtag stop the coup, hashtag stop the coop, and hashtag stop the coupe. It is definitely best to be on the safe side here. Sweet, sweating Jesus riding a bicycle on a church roof in a perspex box. Mm. Yes, that's where we are. Yeah. I would attempt to explain to you more precisely, but A, it's way too complicated, and B, it will probably have changed by the time you hear this. Maybe just slam your tits in a car door <laughs> repeatedly, the effect is much the same. This weekend, hundreds of thousands of protesters took to the streets at events all over the country after Prime Minister Bumblefuck McPantsonfire's attempts to achieve a no-deal by proroguing Parliament were about as welcome as an Uber driven by Prince Philip. (laughs) And so we finally arrive in the upside down. Mm. Ken Clark is saying he'd accept Corbyn as PM. A former PM, John Major, is taking court action against the current PM, And Owen Jones has finally climbed off the fence to appoint himself the People's Prince. That's how bad it is. Meanwhile, Michael Gove says the government won't necessarily abide by any laws passed to block a no deal. The message from the government seems to clearly be, if you won't let us win, we're taking our ball home. The message from us needs to be equally clear. It's not your fucking ball! Yep, too right. But at least everyone will have the food they need, (laughs) eh? Yep, that is a direct quote from Michael Gove, or to give him his official title, Mr Sarah Vine. The general toad for hire's declaration gives the finger to predictions released by the British Retail Consortium. As a spokesperson for that organisation told The Mirror, it is categorically untrue that the supply of fresh food will be unaffected under a no-deal Brexit. Also, Gove, not everyone has the food they need right now, you twonk. But I guess, you know, being a Tory, you don't really see the poor as people. Up in Scotland, Boris Johnson's impersonation of a tin pot dictator got him called, well, just that, by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who expanded on her feelings in an editorial for the Sunday Post, writing, The last week has brought events that I have never witnessed before in all my time in politics, and, it must be said, events that I never thought I would see. The spectacle of a British Prime Minister attempting to shut down Parliament at a time of national crisis to railroad through the most divisive and potentially damaging peacetime policy, arguably in living memory, is one to chill the blood. Hear, hear. Meanwhile, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson, did what she does best. Ran away. Run away! <laughs> Run away! Announcing she would be stepping down to spend more time with her newborn son which prompted a lot of speculation as to what the future would be for the Tories north of the border. Side note, who gives a fuck? (laughs) And some sympathetic editorials about the pressures on working mums. So I may well catch some shit for saying this, but... You've seen Band of Brothers, right? I have seen Band of Brothers. So for anyone who hasn't seen it or it's been a while since they've seen it, Easy Company has several leaders during their time in Europe. It start off with um, Dick Winters, who is played by Damien Lewis, and... Mm -hmm. They end up with Spears, who's like the really gung-ho action man. And in the middle, they have a guy called Foxhole Norman, who is completely and utterly (laughs) terrible. 
When they're in the Ardennes having the shit shelled out of them, he keeps just crawling up to people and saying, just hold the fort here. I'm off for help. <laughs> and that's just the image I have of, of Ruth Davidson is just crawling over to Nicola Sturgeon saying, do what you can for Scotland. I'm going on maternity leave. I'm fucking off to spend more time with my kids. Yeah. Foxhole I, Ruth. Foxhole Ruth. I interviewed Val McDermott for our Thatcher documentary and we were chatting a little bit about Brexit at the end and she said to me that she had no sympathy for Ruth Davidson because she'd just managed to stay absent the whole time when there were votes on Brexit and as Val put it, lesbians know when they're getting pregnant she's done this on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the other lies, sorry, information that Johnson's dictatorship is flinging into the public sphere like so much shit from a monkey cage. Those with any spare cash after stockpiling tea bags and cat food might want to get their hands on some tasty get-ready-for-Brexit merch. Mmm. Six mugs and four t-shirts for me, please, bozo. They'll really fucking brighten up the bunker. What could well be the UK's biggest public information campaign ever has launched in order to encourage Joe and Jean Public to visit the Get Ready website. gov.uk forward slash Brexit uses multiple choice questions to offer bespoke info. It's, and I'm sure you'll be as surprised as I was, it's not that helpful, to be honest. Renew passports earlier, buy a GB sticker for your motor if you want to take it to EU countries, and brace yourself for some mobile phone roaming charges. Most of the recommended actions are listed with a warning to do it as soon as possible. Sure, okay, do what? The only thing the website seems to be categorical about is that we're going to be crashing out of the EU on October the 31st. I don't understand how you can apply for your passport any earlier than now, though. Do it as soon as possible, Hannah. Ever been really angry that a TV series was cancelled? Yes, loads. Yeah, well then you might have some sympathy for unemployed writer Imperial Young, who has embarked on a hunger strike after Netflix cancelled what turns out to be yet another of her favourite TV shows, The OA. I mean, it's obviously completely stupid, and I find her mentions of Gandhi borderline offensive. But when asked by journalists what on earth she was doing, Young said, this is just one step too far. I can't lose the OA too. I've had it. This is the hill I'll die on. And you know what? When I look at the news, I kind of get it. How much shit are we supposed to put up with? Good luck to her. I think we are all that woman on the edge. (laughs) Indeed, what with all the doom and gloom in the news, you'd be forgiven for thinking the world is actually on fire. And by forgiven, I mean you'd be right. Thousands of fires are ravaging the Amazon rainforest in Brazil, the most intense blazes in over a decade. It is, to put it mildly, fucking devastating. The Amazon basin, home to about 3 million species of plants and animals and 1 million indigenous people, is crucial to regulating global warming, with its forests absorbing millions of tonnes of carbon every year. And it's us humans that are destroying the lungs of the earth. The locations and timings of the fires are consistent with land clearing, with the anti-environment rhetoric of Brazilian President Herb Bolsonaro. Herb sounds a bit like Herbal, though. That can't be a name. <laughs> Mr. Herb Bolsonaro. <laughs> hey, Paul, we have a Herb Bolsonaro. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, given the decisions he's making, I would trust something I'd pulled out of your vax to make better decisions. <laughs> Anyway, President Herr Bolsonaro has been encouraging such tree-clearing activities since he came into power in January. But, you know, it was nice to have a summer heatwave and everything. Do you know, though, I've got to say about this, important and everything though it is, it's really annoying how fucking sanctimonious people have been. It's just given a lot of people an excuse to just lecture other people on what they should and shouldn't care about. I saw the World Wildlife Fund about 10 days ago tweet, why is it everyone was so interested when Notre Dame was burning down, but they're not interested about this? And the first answer underneath was, look to yourselves, mates. This is the first time you've tweeted about it and you're the fucking World Wildlife Fund. I mean, there's a point on both sides there, I think. Yeah. The the Notre Dame thing was horrible to watch, but the amount of money that came pouring forth for that and yet doesn't come pouring forth for humanitarian efforts is disgusting. I know, but a lot of people are saying, why aren't other people talking about it? And then you look back through their timeline and they are also not talking about it. Yeah. Is it just me or is anyone else worried about the Amazon being on fire? That is what I'm seeing a lot of and it drives me mad. I get it. Meanwhile, Hurricane Dorian continues to rampage. As I speak, the Category 5 storm is pummeling the Bahamas with catastrophic winds. 
It is, to put it mildly, very bad news for the island chain, with Bahamian Prime Minister Hubert Minnis telling a nationally televised news conference that it is probably the most sad and worst day of his life. US states Georgia and the Carolinas are looking on nervously with all of the Michigan evacuation orders for their coastal communities. And what of that country's president? Well, vehement climate catastrophe denier Donald J. Fucknut sowed confusion when he said incorrectly that Alabama would be hit by the storm, which forced the National Weather Service to issue an update. So he said it again at a press conference. He also repeated his claim that he wasn't sure he had ever even heard of a Category 5 hurricane, despite four of this category of hurricane already happening during his tenure. Presumably you just can't count that high, right? What a bit of good news. Oh, for fuck's sake, yes, please. Well, it seems that fortune does indeed favour the brave, as opposed to miserable middle-aged cunts on Twitter. Hooray! Oh, yes, 16-year-old environmental campaigner Greta Thunberg arrived safely in New York last week, having crossed the Atlantic in a solar-powered boat rather than fly, which would have been a whole lot easier. And I can empathise having recently been on a train to Edinburgh. (laughs) Let's ignore all the horrible shit people have said about her and just say, well done, that girl. Well done, that girl. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we celebrate female achievement with a trophy that looks like tits. Yep, over to UEFA, which this week scored a goal that turned out to be something of a handball when it named Lioness Lucy Bronze as Women's Player of the Year then presented her with a shiny pair of norks. Uh, Just for any doubters at the back, Bronze proved herself a phenomenal athlete, brilliant defender and formidable shot in football. And definitely not titball. Because, ouch. Uh, but I think you'll find it's just the same as the men's. Yelled, whined, fuck knows. Some men. Hashtag, not all men. And they'd be right. The men's trophy is also a headless torso. But, crucially, men don't have tits. Hashtag, not all men. A teeny tiny bit of forethought on UEFA's part might have led to the conclusion that this was problematic. Because yes, we're back to the old adage that equality does not mean exactly the same. And man is not the default. Also, UEFA chose to host its award ceremony in the middle of the women's season, meaning none of the nominees got to attend and Bronze wasn't able to be there to collect her tits. However... I am going to wrap Sexism of the Week up with a bit of good news courtesy of the UEFA Awards. I know. And that is simply this. Eric Cantona's speech. (laughs) Wowzers. I watched it three times (laughs) because I thought, you know what, it's easy to mark. Maybe he is actually saying something. What is he saying? I quite liked it. I think he's chosen to use his speech to outline the fact that the world is fucked. But my particular favourite line was after all that when he just goes, I love football. (laughs) Yeah, but... He, his delivery is so appalling that you're actually unable to concentrate on what it is that he's saying. The seagulls, it follows the troller. Hey there, you lot. If you're wondering how you can join in on the fun of a live Standard Issue podcast, well, you're in luck because I'm here to tell you our next live show will be at King's Place in London as part of the London Podcast Festival. And we are absolutely chuffed to bits because we will be joined by comedian and disability rights activist Tanya Lee Davis, as well as journalist and co-author of the brilliant Slay in Your Lane, Yomi Adegaki. And that will be on September the 15th. You can find out more information on this and how to get tickets by visiting our website www.standardissuepodcast.com please do get a ticket it's my birthday and i will as the song goes cry if i want to technically it was her party not her birthday but same difference right hello me and the hannah one hello it's very abrupt it wasn't it i'm sorry Hello. <laughs> I'm not sure. Now it's all sultry. Oh, what an atmosphere we've already created. And we are joined by playwright and all-round excellent woman, Sadie Hasler. Hello. Hello there. All right. So lovely to see you. It's so lovely to see you both. I'm so professional, I just swallowed my gum. <laughs> <laughs> so that I wouldn't be making weird noises as, for you. You could have stringy you poo. Impress it will wrap itself there. around your lungs. Your um, heart? Yeah. We always got told heart, not lungs. Was it lungs for you? Lungs was what my nan used to say. Oh, right. I remember having been told that once, and then I accidentally got knocked and swallowed chewing gum. I was convinced I was going to die. I was terrified. I swallow it all the time. And I did used to think, when I was a kid, do I really want a big ball of chewing gum in my tummy? But then you just keep doing it. Does so. it just take ages to kind of I don't of know what happens to it. I still don't know what happens to it. But I just... Sometimes it's just quicker, isn't it? You know when you don't, don't want to be rude and, like, flick it somewhere and there's no <laughs> bin anywhere? You'll like, stick it under a table. You know, just I'm rank. not that kind of gal. 
So. Let's talk about the kind of girl you are. Okay. Which is an Essex Segway. girl. That was a really good, <laughs> yeah, I liked that. Yeah. <laughs> so your new place, Stiletto Beach, is debunking some Essex girl myths, right? Allegedly. That is what I was commissioned to do by Queen's Theatre Hornchurch. For months, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know if that if I was achieving that because it's such a big thing to tackle. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you attempt to write a thing that is so entrenched in Essex and in, and well in England, isn't it? As a as a thing, as a stereotype, everyone hears Essex and they instantly think of certain things well our resident Essex girl the genster isn't here today she's sodded off on a holiday so can you give us a little like rundown of the stereotypes that you have been putting up with for decades the main one for me born in 1980 little girl throughout the 80s and then you know living through Ladette culture of the 90s when obviously people like Denise Van Outen famous Essex girl were massive so they were kind of giving it this kind of bold, fun, 90s vibe. But Mm -hmm. I was still very, very conscious of all the negative stuff. I always felt dumb if I admitted where I came from. And I don't think I've always had as Essex an accent as I do now Mm -hmm. when I was younger, because I'm not actually from Essex. I've kind of lived in, was born in London and lived in Leicester. Yeah, and I was just always really conscious that people thought I was a bimbo, that they thought, you know, you're just up for a good time and that you're a bit of a flirt and all that sort of sexually promiscuous stuff. So it's always something that I've been aware of. And wherever possible, if it, if it suited me, would say, I'm not an Essex girl, because it kind of stopped people tainting me with that rubbish. Still persists, definitely. There's still that, you know, underlying thing of, oh, she's, a, she's good for a laugh, cheeky, bit, you know, definitely... Sometimes people think you're a bit dumb. And people are always surprised when I'm a writer. A female writer from Essex are like, really? Seriously? Yeah. Like, genuine Lots surprise? People, especially, you know, men, yeah. Yeah, I think throughout the UK they're sort of seen as playful, like the various stereotypes you get for regions. But as with all stereotypes, they, they tend to have a darker side. Absolutely. Well, the Essex girl one is just completely rooted in misogyny, I think. Mm-hmm. Mainly because that it's putting women into a box where they're being derided for things of a sexual nature, even though they're, you know, they're obviously having to deal with this stuff as professional women walking into an environment where it's not fair to be judged on their appearance, it's not fair to be assumed that they behave in a certain way or that they are sexually promiscuous or all these things that people just assume. I have to say, uh, part of me is a little bit jealous, to be honest, because I come from that bit of the country that has no stereotypes whatsoever <laughs> like I'm from the home counties like who gives a fuck it's literally nothing <laughs> so the idea that anybody has any sort of regional identity I'm like hey that is something really yeah but I have to say when I was younger the thing about Essex was that it was common yeah and the irony too, is our definitely. Essex girl is actually posher than both of yeah, us that's isn't true. she Jen's so that's, middle class one in the room isn't yeah, she? yeah so that's clearly bollocks but that was sort of the I think the in in the 80s when I was growing up yeah and I mean, you're like a whole county of people can't be common that's ridiculous no. and also what is common I yeah. mean it's yeah. a dreadful word but I, I think there's definitely when I've kind of been looking into the Essex stereotype and the Essex girl stereotype because obviously they're you know the, the wider stereotype it's interested me to see that it's de- definitely a class thing about you know people being Coming out of London, coming out of the East End, trying to, you know, making new settlements in Essex. Um, new and money as well, isn't new it? New money yeah. and that whole kind of aspirational thing. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of big money in Essex where people have come out and they've, they're making money. So they don't, they think, why spend this money on somewhere tiny in London when I could move out and have a massive pile in somewhere in Essex? So there is that aspirational thing that then, you know, once you've got money, you are part of a different class and whether you're welcomed to it or not is another thing. But it's tricky because there is a lot of money and a lot of people who are very resentful of being judged as common because they're like, hey, hang on. They, they see they've, they've climbed up, you know. I think that was birds of a feather. They were in Essex, weren't they? Chigwell, wasn't it? Yeah, think, Chigwell, yeah. I think that's kind of what, yeah. considering that there were four channels at the time, how many people watched that? I think that probably did a huge amount of damage to the I, Essex brand, as absolutely. it were. Absolutely. 
But it's really weird because I, I read an article by um, a journalist called Tim Burrows, who's a South End lad, uh, who's brilliant. He's, and he's done this, he did years and years and years of research and wrote this amazing long piece for The Guardian, which he should turn into a book. But he said that the Sharon and Tracy that you know, yeah. came from the birds of a feather thing. And then I thought, well, hang on. That's really weird because those two characters weren't your typical Essex girl in terms of the glamour and that, you know, they were quite stay at home, quite... They weren't living they a wouldn't life have been of on drudgery, but, you, you know, they weren't going out clubbing, were they? No. They weren't going out and living a promiscuous life. They were harping back to their... Their partners who were in the, have they been in prison? They were yeah. in prison, yeah. They were in prison. So although they had the money and lived in Essex, they weren't your stereotypical Essex women, I don't think, other than their accents. When you were doing your research, did you find out where these stereotypes came from? It came from the 80s. Essex man, Essex girl kind of so followed it's fairly new then. It came up because of this aspirational thing of these kind of men from Essex getting jobs as brokers and working their way up and making a lot of money but being seen as new money so not having any class whatsoever but coexisting wide boys, wide, wide boys. yeah yeah so that's where that came from and then the, the the Essex girl stereotype kind of bubbled up alongside it in terms of women being seen as they weren't the ones making the money but they were the consumers that lived with the Essex man so they were the ones that wanted all the cash and going out shopping and clubbing it's and being vacuous that it's man and girl exactly yeah. I got the girl thing yeah don't get me started but um <laughs> we want to get you started yeah. <laughs> but yeah so I, fa- I found that interesting what are your views on Essex girls not coming from Essex how have, how have you looked in have you ever do you feel like you've ever made judgments I suppose I mean, I don't really like for my little greenhouse to have any stones to throw. But, um, yeah, I guess it's that, like, whereas, like, a northern woman is kind of, kind of, we're supposed to be fairly brash, particularly as my family come from Liverpool. It's a similar sort of don't trust them. They're a bit wide boy. They're a bit, you know, the girls are really slutty. And I guess it's easy to just group people in together. But I'm hopeful that I haven't gone, ah, she's from Essex, she's not for me about anyone, which is what the stereotypes would tell you that they're not for anyone, apart from other Essex girls, which is ridiculous. So I'm hopeful that, no, I've not been a prejudiced dick, but I'm sure there are, like... Like, Towie made sense to me that they would set it in Essex, so I guess that's prejudiced. Yeah. But then it's been, like, forced down. I don't watch it. I'm I'm not wearing that as any sort of badge of honour, but um, I guess... You can't avoid the posters for it and the like trailers for it. And no, stuff. it was, is was massive. They are still making it. Aren't yeah. They? yeah, I don't I know. So. Um, I mean, I watched one episode of it, the very first one. I had to review it for something, and then I've never watched it since. And I have had years of just being furious about it. And now I'm just like, I just really don't care because I just don't... Number one, it's not real. They're just being... It's the producers that are just whipping up these characters Mm -hmm. and and doing it all for their own benefit. So, See, I used to work at a regional newspaper that Essex was in our patch, or parts of Essex were in our patch. Parts of Essex that were in our patch were no different from the places in Cambridgeshire and Suffolk that were in our patch, you know, like Saffron Walden, because that's really middle class, really rural, really, really just posh middle class area that you think the idea that that was Essex, and I'm putting quotation marks for people who can't obviously see them, in the same way that, you know, girls queuing up to go to a nightclub in virtually no clothes and white stilettos is Essex, is, yeah. is a nonsense. But that that last image is also Newcastle. It's also yes. bits of Manchester. Oh, my it's God. Also Portsmouth. When, I, yeah. when yeah. I was touring, I was going around the country so much and, and um, obviously turning up to gigs at night. So I was seeing the nightlife and around the clubs and everything. So quite often we'd see girls out in the street and whatever. And I was just some of the places I went to, I think Newcastle and Nottingham stand out, as places where I was just like, wow, this is way more Essex than I've yeah. ever seen in Essex. <laughs> if, if that is, although the last, that's what you're associating <laughs> yeah. with. Essex. The last time we went out in Essex, possibly the only time we've ever been out on a standard issue doing Essex, everybody was dressed like the gladiators from the 1980s. Their haircuts what? were very gladiators. Yeah. There was a lot of mullets going on. In no, a, a in a way that they way. had picked their style in the 1980s and they were now in their 50s <laughs> and it hadn't you? changed. Harwich. Dovercourt. Harwich. Dovercourt, yeah. Dovercourt, yeah. Oh. 
Yeah, which is where Jen's from. It was hilarious. But it did feel like they were ticking the boxes on the stereotypes. Because I guess There's that's the other thing. Camp. You can either be... Like, some people get offended or rile against, not even offended, but rile against it. Or you can either go, do you know what? Fuck you. If you think this is what we're like, yeah, let's just amp it. Absolutely, yeah. I'd argue that the stereotypical Essex girl look is now Instagram face. Absolutely. It's it's just, yeah, it's just a very current look that's just, yeah, anywhere. So when Queen's Theatre asked you to debunk these myths, where did you start? I didn't know where to start, so I thought, right, the only place I can start is is the town I know, love, hate, and so I decided to set it in Southend, and then I literally wrote a list of possible titles just for my brain to kind of just trigger on certain things to see what was getting my tummy excited about mm-hmm. certain things. And Stiletto Beach was the one that I kept coming back to because it just... Part of me thought, it sounds almost like... It sounds quite exotic... And it sounds almost like a war's gone on there as well, like a famous battle as well, (laughs) which I kind of was drawn to. And you've got a very good line in strong female leads and all-female casts. Yeah. Is this happening again? Do you know what? I actually did write some boys in. I had some blokes. Get out. Uh, Yeah, I know. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not always going to be about the all-female thing. And then it was uh, Doug, the artistic director of the theatre, who was like, Babe, you don't need them. What, what you, <laughs> he, he, he said, just just cut them out. And I was really reluctant at first because one of the male characters was the old kind of set-in-his-ways sexist pig agent of one of my characters, Dame Vivian Steele, who is is based on Helen Mirren, a South End girl. And I thought, no, I really want him because he was such a grotesque representation of... The men who don't know how to act around women now that they know that certain behaviours are wrong. The post-Me Too casualties. Exactly. And all those old dinosaurs that just are thinking, fucking hell, I want to make this joke, I want to do this, I want to do this, but I know I can't anymore. I don't quite understand why. I know things are (laughs) shifting. And that you can see the calculations going on in their heads as they just try to figure out how to be a man now. So I really wanted that because I wanted people to just fucking hate him. <laughs> I hate him anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we can hate him. Do you know what I mean? Like just hearing about him. Yeah. What a cunt. What story does Stiletto Beach tell? The tale of two friends, Kelly and Leanne, who have always lived in Southend, who you would probably from the outside see as pretty typical Essex girls. And a newcomer moves into town, into the flat next door, who is not from Southend, not from Essex at all. Um, and she is a Guardian journalist, and she very soon writes an article about Southend, Essex, and and the Essex girls, and they read it. And having just taken her under their wing, they're furious at some of the stuff she's come out with because she's just, you know, made massive assumptions and just fallen back on the the stereotypes to carve her journalist career out with. And it all kicks off from there. I have a question. Yeah. You saying that about Guardian? That mm. reminds me of that. Do you remember that great article when someone from the Times went to Leeds and wrote this that <laughs> article about like, oh my god, they've got shops there and everything. <laughs> it was uh, a lie. We, we get we, that quite a lot, yeah. and I think that's why I wanted to put it in yeah. that kind of sense of surprise. Oh, it's not a dump. Oh, it's not full of morons. Yeah. Like, no. But can I ask you about sort of the gentrification of yes, Southend yeah. and uh, t- towns like that? How do you feel about that? Uh, that features in the play as well. Actually, there's a quite a big speech from one of the characters. You know. Pick People move down, buy up the big houses, meaning people can't afford those houses anymore that come from the town, and then they're pushed out to the outskirts and then made to feel like scum for being lo- for daring to be local mm. and daring to sound local. Uh, my personal feelings on it are I don't like wankers. <laughs> <laughs> so there is an element of there are parts of my town, uh, Leon C being one of them, where there are certain people. It's very clear they're not from the area that they have moved down, and that's absolutely fine. But when they look down their nose at people, I could literally stab them between the eyes because I, I can't bear snobbery and I can't bear rudeness. Um, yeah, it's tricky. It is tricky. Especially when it's going on so so close to roads that I know and love from when I was a kid, absolutely just being 
just drowning in poverty and drugs and all sorts of things. And you, to be able to see the shift where certain parts of the town have been built up and, and regenerated and other parts that used to be lovely are kind of going through a bit of a shabby phase. And I know that's all the natural flux of a town and that happens. But when you see the mass wealth a few streets, or the same as London, a few streets away from poverty. It's sickening, isn't it? It does make you feel yeah, sick. Terrific. And lucky that you're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know. Stiletto Beach opens at Queen's Theatre Hornchurch today, if you listen to this Fresh Out of the Box on Wednesday, and runs to September the 28th. Sadie Hazlitt, where can people get more info about the play and about you in general my website is sadiehasler.com uh i will update it because i think i've been a bit lax lately um, you know sadie every single person that comes in here says that what they need to update their website everyone says you could go to my website but i haven't been on it for like a year (laughs) (laughs) i think i've got some bits on there that are relevant to certain things maybe yeah uh but obviously if you fancy coming along to see the play which i would love you to do go to queen's theater hornchurch's website I'm going to go and see it next Wednesday, and I'm very excited. Are you going to come? I am coming, of course. press night. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Thanks for having me. All right, it's Janet. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. Hello, you are about to hear a taster of a fascinating chat that Hannah and I had with the magnificent woman that is Carrie Gracie. When we met her, obviously we played it well cool like... But if you check out my stupidly delighted face, which you can see on the photo of us with Carrie on social media, I mean, it's fairly obvious that I was chuffed to bits to meet this fierce, courageous, BBC arse-kicking woman. There is much more of this conversation to push into your ear canals coming this Sunday. But for now, here is Carrie recapping exactly what happened when she took the beeb to task for a massive gender pay gap. And, you know, how she made an organisation confront inequality and hopefully start to reform. In our chat, Carrie mentions that her donation to the Fawcett Society led to it forming its Equal Pay Advice Service in partnership with YEWS Law. Yes, Law. And that helps women wanting to fight for equal pay. So for further details on this, please visit www.fawcettsociety.org.uk. And it almost goes without saying that you should totally get her book, Equal. And there's more info on that at the end of the section. Hello, Hannah. Hello. And I are joined by BBC News journalist and author of new book, Equal, a story of women, men and money, Carrie Gracie. Hey, Carrie. Hello. Thanks very much for coming in. Very exciting. I guess it's almost part of your job description and it's certainly your Twitter bio to add ex-BBC China editor. <laughs> uh, I think that's just because I haven't got around to changing it. Actually, I think I have got around to changing it now. I checked this morning. Did you? I Is did. Is it still saying Ex- ex-BBC China? Yeah. Oh, I might change it now. <laughs> but let's start by recapping how Equal clearly started. Could you tell us how it all kicked off with the BBC? So it really kicked off in 2017 because the BBC was forced to make some pay disclosures. And these were pay disclosures that for the first time allowed individual women to compare their pay with men doing the same jobs, which is obviously very unusual because we live in a society where a lot of pay is secret Mm -hmm. and a lot of women can't possibly compare their pay with the man at the next desk doing the same job because it's never discussed. And I think we're still in a society which sees talking about money as a bit uncouth. Well, uncouth and, yeah, and just somehow terrifying and, you know, I mean, it makes us very awkward, doesn't it? I mean, uh, there are stats that say we're far more happy to talk about our sexual partners, our (laughs) sexually transmitted diseases, whatever, than we are to talk about our pay, Um, which is unfortunate because that's how women lose out. And so going back to my kind of beginning of my story, in July 2017, the BBC was forced to publish some figures about everyone was earning salaries over 150000 And I was two days into or three days into a holiday, and I didn't really want to think about it. But someone kind of, a friend of mine said, have you looked at these figures? The friend that I was staying with, she said, you know, what are all these men doing on this list who do the same job as you? And they're way above your pay. I thought you asked for equal pay when you went to China. I'm thinking... Yes, you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, So on that day, I learned that, you know, some of the men that I uh, ostensibly did the same or similar work as were earning nearly twice as much as me. (sighs) 
I mean, I know that, but yeah, it still elicits a gasp. It's ridiculous. Well, the other aspect of it is I literally had gone in and said, I will not do your China job for you because they were desperate for me to do it because they really didn't have another obvious candidate and they wanted it done. I said... Equal pay is one of the key conditions for me. I had three conditions for doing the job and equal pay was one of them. Because a lot of women at the BBC had suspected that this kind of thing was going on. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have hard facts and it's uncomfortable to challenge it. You know, you'd rather talk about the journalism. It's not polite to talk about money, as we were just saying. So on that day, we all kind of grew up in one fell swoop. How hard was the decision to pursue what you knew was rightfully yours? Uh, it, it was hard. It wasn't hard at the beginning. It got mm, harder. Yeah, um, it was a really drawn out yeah. process. So that all started in July 2017 and a lot of us grouped together. We wrote letters to our director general. I have to say I did not draft or send the letter. I just I signed my name because I was kind of like resolutely going in the other direction to the Outer Hebrides onto my, you know, I just really wanted my holiday. And all this stuff at the BBC is like the BBC is one never-ending cycle of um of dramas of one kind and another and, <laughs> uh, you know, crises that management make worse. So I didn't want to let it disrupt my holiday. So so I'm not going to name the people who did get the letter together. But anyway, I signed it. We wrote to the director general, said, sort this out. You know, we as senior women at the BBC want to stand up for all women at the BBC and say, this is not acceptable. So that's how it started. But then it went on. And you know, I first, I think in the early weeks, I really thought we'd sort it out by talking reasonably. Yeah. Um, Mm. And so did many others. We thought we'd make the case, explain why it was important, show how we were doing the same work, remind managers of the facts of the situation and that that, uh, they'd go, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. You are doing equal work. Why don't you have equal pay? And then that didn't happen. And we ended up in kind of a grueling war of attrition in a trench, each of us siloed in our own trench because... The way these things work is by an informal pay complaint, followed by a grievance, followed by appeal against agreements, and an employer will isolate each woman as far as possible. That's certainly my experience and the experience of a lot of women as far as I can tell. Did it end up feeling like you were carrying the torch for it, though? Because your story was very much the one splashed across the newspapers. Well, so what happened was that... Um, in December 2017, we were beginning to work out that reason wasn't going to do it for us, that making a sensible argument, just like making a sensible argument in 1866, didn't get, (laughs) you know, didn't actually get women the vote, that it took till, you know, uh, it took 50 years and and the First World War and the, you know, sacrifice of the suffragettes and all the rest of it before any women got the vote. So making a reasoned argument is one of those things that's not not going to get you to win where power and money and status are in play and their vested interests just being reasonable sweetly is not going to do it so by Christmas 2017 we'd kind of worked that out and there was a question was what we we're going to do next and I personally felt that as somebody in my mid-50s there were various factors anyway and we may or may not want to go into them all but there were various factors that made me not want to put up with it and also be prepared to go up over the top, as I put it, you know, that yeah. that kind of resignation of my post, the open protest letter, the calling the BBC's pay culture secretive and illegal in the pages of the Times. I was prepared to do that. So, yes, that was a kind of standard bearing thing to do. At what point did you decide, hang on, there's a book in this? Well, that was much later because I then, even after the protest letter and the parliamentary hearing and the you know, regulator getting involved and all the rest of it, I was still slogging on with my internal complaint because that's what you have to do if you're going to bring an equal pay complaint and you're going to fight an equal pay case. So I was slogging on through the internal complaint system for another nearly six months. And it was only in June 2018 that the BBC still didn't find me equal. And I had a choice of what I was going to do. And I put it simply in my in my terms as I was going to lie down leave or litigate those were my three options and lying down is just going okay you win I'll go back to work be a good soldier and leaving is obviously I was if I was going to do that I was going to do it loudly and slam the door on departure Mm -hmm. yeah or I was going to litigate but that was a really terrifying prospect because I knew by then I talked to a lot of women who had tried to pursue their equal pay cases it's just a 
horrendous road, so hard for women to pursue that. You know, they, they risk their livelihood, they risk their career, they risk their financial security because it costs so much to go to court. They risk their mental health. I cannot tell you the number of women who have described awful mental health problems that they've suffered as a result of taking these workplace fights with their bosses, you know, who have not been prepared to give in and lie down. Anyway, so I was getting to this point where the BBC came back. It was the end of the road. I'd gone through the informal complaint, through the grievance, through the appeal against the grievance. It was nearly a year of fighting that, my own personal case. They came back and they they're the end of the road is when they give you your appeal outcome and they say, this is the end of your road. You have no further recourse here. And so I had a choice of whether to litigate or not. And I thought at that time... I can't do it. I just, I, I'm just not strong enough to do this. This is just going to crush me um, because I'll be. It's not that. It's not that the BBC itself will destroy me because I'll be so angry that I will take this to court and I will win and I will fight them every day on the way to court and I will win that battle in the you know court public opinion every day mm-hmm. because it matters to me. But I will be so angry that I will crush myself inwardly yeah. at the same time as I'm doing that. So that was what I was worried about. And I thought, well, the other thing I could do is if I leave, I could write a book to alert all other women to the danger and the need to be vigilant because there is no cure to unequal pay at the moment because the law is so unfit for purpose and the battlefield is so unequal between women and their employers. So if there's no cure, the only thing that women can do is protect themselves by prevention. They have to prevent the unequal pay from happening to them in the first place as far as they possibly can. So that degree of vigilance is what is required from all women now, I feel. So I was thinking, well, I could I could write that book. I could leave, slam the door, write that book, say, listen up, we all need to be vigilant. And then what happened was I was going to leave and do that thing and write the book. Then the other BBC women said, you can't leave. Are you mad? <laughs> what, less, what message does that send to everybody else? Because I was kind of, in terms of the process, I was out ahead of the process. There were other people with informal complaints and grievances but it was like you're going up a mountain and you're near you're you know at the top of the line and there are other and so it it looked it would look to everybody else that I'd reached the top of the mountain and jumped off the cliff um, if I left and to me it felt like just getting out and breathing fresh air again and a kind of victory but to other people within our movement our sisterhood it didn't look like that it just looked like the wrong message to send and I could uh, in my truest self, also see what they meant. I could see that I would find it very hard to answer to Emily Pankhurst or Oprah Winfrey <laughs> or <laughs> any of these women. You know, what were you doing? You were a privileged woman with a voice and a public profile and you you would not take on the fight. Seriously, Carrie, is that good enough? And I knew, and I knew that that voice would be would be bugging me in the back of my head if I left. So, so basically, I thought, okay. I have no other choice. I have to win now. So I went to see the director general of the BBC and I said, well, first I wrote to him and I said, I'm going to fight you in court and I'm going to win. And I said, what, just what I said to you. I said, not only am I going to win in court, which is going to be the 50th anniversary of the Equal Pay Act, and you are going to be the test case to mark that anniversary. How happy are you about that? (laughs) But I'm going to beat you every day until then as well. And so I think he thought I was mad and bad enough to do it and that it would be uncomfortable. And therefore, you know, to cut a long story short, they settled. And as I see it, they surrendered. And I got pay parity and I got an apology. And there was a public statement between me and the director general in which they apologised. And then I gave the money away to the Fawcett Society to help low-paid women with their equal pay advice from lawyers. So all of that happened. But anyway, I'd kind of already had the idea for a book. I still felt, I still had this, I, I describe it as survivor guilt, I think that part of the reason I won my case was because I was mad and bad and determined, but it was also because I had two enormous privileges, one being I had a public voice because of my role, yeah. and two being I had this amazing group of very fierce women behind me, and we were watertight in terms of support. And a lot of women fighting for equal pay or a lot of women who face unequal pay don't have that and I found the fight almost overwhelming at times and I just cannot imagine what it is like for women who have to fight it on their own. If a woman was in a similar situation to you what would be a couple of tips that you'd give her? Leave. (laughs) 
what would be one tip that you would give? <laughs> Seriously, I do think that you need to think about your value and you need to think about your contribution and you need to be fairly honest about it um, and you need to work out what you're contributing in your workplace that is of value and what your employer values. And you need to discuss that with your boss and you need to be having that conversation ideally on a fairly regular basis, not feeling inhibited about it. If you're not comfortable talking about money and that's where we started the conversation, you know, just have a, just, just get a little bit outside your comfort zone. Start writing down the things that you do that you think add value. Even drop them in an email to your boss. Just start trying to have conversations about money and maybe start with your friends and family and then start with your colleagues and the best place to start in terms of colleagues is possibly someone who's just left or is leaving yeah. so that they don't feel inhibited about telling you about their pay and gradually move yourself into a slightly more assertive space in terms of thinking this is a natural sensible thing to do to think about the value that I contribute how I can increase it how I can discuss it how I can um, get it properly valued and if your employer is not taking that seriously if your employer has a very large gender pay gap if they don't have a sensible narrative for why that exists or how they intend to narrow it if the winners in your workplace look exactly like the previous generation of winners and nothing like you, i.e. by gender or sexual orientation or socioeconomic class or whatever, then start asking yourself why you're there and whether they are the kind of workplace that might change and whether you better be moving if they're not going to change. Especially if you're young, I think, because you don't ideally want to leave it until you're, you know, until you feel less free to shift. And obviously, when you have kids or caring duties in one kind or another, it does become harder yeah. for people. And so if you're young and mobile in your career, you want to start really identifying whether your workplace is, is somewhere that shares your values. Equal is out on Thursday, the 5th of September. Where can people find out more about the book and about you, please, Carrie? I think they can find out more about the book on Virago's website or on my website. I've got a website which is carriegracie.com and Virago is virago.co.uk. And if I can make, do a plug for my China work, yeah, which yeah. that's where the conversation started with the value of that work, of which I was immensely proud because it was done in the teeth of so much opposition from the Chinese. Oh, and I forgot to mention that when we think about, um, you know, when we think about why I did do that going up over the top and, you know, bearing the torch, I told the Chinese foreign ministry when they said, what on earth were you doing? What was that about? And I said to them, it was you. You taught me defiance. And I just <laughs> operated it back home. But anyway, so looking at my China work, my China work, some of it, my favorite pieces anyway, are on my website. And that was where it started. I thought that work was of equal value. And I was not prepared for anyone to tell me less. Carrie, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. You You're made an absolute me want inspiration. To, made me want to kick the patriarchy in the balls, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm off to do that now. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Hello, Jen here. I would probably be telling you about the US Open if I were at work this week, but I'm recording this intro on Thursday of last week because I'm off, as you hear this, doing special Jen projects. So I can't because, as I always tell you, I can't time travel. I know, how rude. But instead, I have an absolute treat for you because last week I was able to catch up with Juventus striker and former England international Ennio Luco, who's just written a book called They Don't Teach This, which is basically about lessons in life that she has discovered throughout the course of her professional football career. It's really, really interesting and we recorded lots more than this. This is just a little taster for you and you'll be able to hear the full recording in a couple of weeks' time. I hope you enjoy. I'm joined by Enia Luco, Juventus striker and former England international. Let's talk about her new book, They Don't Teach This. Any, hi, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Obviously, you've had a really long career now. You started when you were a teenager. You joined Birmingham City. I guess you weren't professional at the time, semi-professional. And that was a long time ago. So you will have seen an extraordinary amount of change yes. in that time. I actually support Charlton Athletic. Um, do you? I do, wow. yeah, yeah, I know. At the time, Charlton and Arsenal were the sort 
sort of the, the yeah. Yeah, 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 and people forget that about Charlton. They forget know, that of pioneers, and obviously it all kind of went wrong when sadly we were relegated. Yeah. So what what kind of impacts did that have on you, sort of early on in football, and, and how has that sort of changed over time? Well, I think at, at that time Charlton, as you said, were the, one of the best teams in the country, and, and moving from Birmingham to Charlton was the equivalent now of like moving from Birmingham to Chelsea. Like it was a massive step up for me. And at the time I was at college and I was travelling two two days a week to London and it was a big big deal for me. It was a big step up. Playing with, you know, players like Pauline Cope, you know, and you know, legends of the game at the time. But it was semi pro and, you know, I was getting paid sort of hundred pound a week, hundred pound a game if you played. You know, if you played, you get paid. If you don't play, you don't get paid. If you're injured, you don't get paid. You know, so so that was the reality of it. And for me, it was like pocket money for college. You know, it, was, it wasn't by no stretch of the imagination was it a career path. So I had a bit of a problem because I loved what I did. I loved playing for Charlton, but then I was, at, I was 17, 18. And that's when you start to make, have to make real decisions about your career. So when... Charlton collapsed it was like oh god okay now this really cannot be a career path now like it's it's I've got to focus on my education I've got to focus on my career and so for the longest time I just thought I wasn't going to play football I thought it was just going to be a hobby and then I got the call from America to go to America and play professionally and that's the first time when I could actually call football a job but it wasn't in England it was somewhere else so actually professional football in England is a really new thing it's only the last five years that, you know, you can actually say, well, I've got a contract and I'm paid to do this. This is my job. And I don't have to do anything else. I can pay my mortgage without panicking, which is a sharp contrast to the men, for example. So it's moved on a lot. And I think the Olympics helped that, 2012. I think opening up the Olympics, people went, oh, women's football's all right. And then the club started getting on board and then the FA started trying to put more investment into it. But honestly, growing up, I never thought we would be where we are now. I think the FA player is really exciting. You know they're going to put the um, WSL games on the internet, basically on a platform yeah, that's yeah, like free that. to watch. You've got to give the FA a lot of credit for what they've done in the last few years with the FA WSL. They've really taken on board some of the, the complaints um, that fans had in terms of fixtures, in terms of just the access to information, broadcasting. I think obviously they they, they had good intentions with getting a broadcaster with B, BT Sport, but that was still not. It was still pay per view TV, and what you need is accessibility to the women's game. So so that move now with the FA player is is amazing because people around the world will now be able to watch women's football free every week. The only issue, slight issue I have, is that we're coming off the back of a World Cup that was watched by so many people. And the only issue I have is, is are you spoiling fans to become armchair fans? In England, if you look at men's football, it's tradition to go to a game. Even if you can watch five games on your sofa, people still go to the game. Why? Because their grandpa did it, their dad did it, their mum did it. It's, it's part of habit. That's not happening in women's football. Women's football, every four years, you get sell-out stadiums, you get, you get peak spike broadcast viewings. But then when the World Cup's over, you go and watch Chelsea Arsenal, there's 1,000 people in the dog in the stadium. The all-important dog. The all-important dog. You who still counts. <laughs> but ultimately, we need to change that into, no, we want full stadiums every week. So I just wonder, when I saw that, if I was like, that's brilliant, is it the time to do it? Isn't now the time to actually get people to come to games every week and bring their daughters to games every week and spend that money, buy that season ticket? So it's a hard one. It's a really hard balance. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy. What vision of, well, not quite a future health did you watch this week? This week we watched Never Let Me Go, which I think is 2010. Not a dystopia. It's an alternate reality. So actually, largely takes part in the 70s, the 80s and the 90s rather than the future. Mm -hmm. But I suppose you could argue looking at it that it could still happen, just not in the past. 
if that makes sense. Does that make sense? It makes sense, yeah. It makes sense. Okay, it's based on the novel by Kazuo Ishigura, which is... Have you read it at all? I haven't read it. Probably about 2003. I should have Googled these things, shouldn't I? But I was having a lovely time. He wrote, most famously, The Remains of the Day, um, which is allegedly his best book. I'm going to say I actually think Never Let Me Go is his best book. And therefore... This film was up against it a little bit. It's actually got a really interesting cast because it's got a cast that were all on the cusp of being a lot more famous than they were when they made this. Kira Knightley is probably the only really big name in it when it was made. Yeah, it absolutely shocked Carrie Mulligan to fame, though. Yeah, uh, Carrie Mulligan, Andrea Riseborough, Andrew Garfield, Sally Hawkins, Monica Dolan all of whom weren't really that famous when they made it and now are considerably more famous. And is that Charlotte Rampling? Yes, Charlotte Charlotte Rampling's in it. Again, I suppose she was famous before this. So give us a few broad strokes of the plot. It's very difficult to actually tell you what it's about without doing spoilers. And I'm generally not that bothered about spoilers, but I genuinely think that everybody should read Never Let Me Go. And I'm more concerned about spoiling it if you're going to read the book. So I'll try and do it in a, as a non-spoilery fashion as possible. It opens at a hospital with a grown-up, Kerry Mulligan, watching a young man undergo an operation. And they do mention a couple of words in there. One of them is donor. Then it goes back in time to a children's home in the 19... No, not a children's home. I would say what resembles a boarding school. Yeah. In what they say is the 1970s. But it explains to you that in this alternate universe, technology has advanced quite considerably and the huge medical advances have been made. Basically, it's now possible to live way over the age of 100. So clearly there's something happened. I don't think it's a spoiler when something's been around for this long. And also it kind of means I can't say any of the stuff I want to say. Okay, so as time progresses... You learn that, and it's very much as time progresses, there's no revelation. It's just basically you start to put two and two together. Sally Hawkins is a teacher. She tells them they won't make it to be adults, these children. And slowly but surely you realise that these are clones and that they have been bred to donate their organs to wealthier people. First thing I've got to say about this film is it's incredibly well cast. Like seriously, really well cast. Because Kerry Mulligan is, and she later was in Suffragette, does a very good every woman. She is nominally the lead. It's kind of split between the three of them, but she has the narration, so she is the lead. She played Kathy. Before he went off to Hollywood, Andrew Garfield did a really fine line in socially awkward but kind of lovable yeah. young men, which he does here again. That's Tommy. I have the third character, Ruth. I have to say that I don't think I've ever disliked a character in a book as much as I dislike Ruth. And therefore, Kira Knightley is quite well cast as her because I've never been able to warm to her as an actress and therefore I found her easy to dislike, if that makes sense. I'm interested as to why you dislike Ruth so much. How could you not have just hated Ruth? I didn't I didn't find her easy to warm to, but I think she gets a really, really rough deal. A really rough deal. Because the whole like, oh, you kept us, I kept you apart. And he's like, yeah, you did. And I'm like, hang on, mate, you could have left. Why is it all on her? The plot being that Kerry Mulligan's character, Kathy, befriends Tommy, who is played by Andrew Garfield, who is very much a loner and picked on and sad little boy. And Ruth decides that she doesn't want them to be friends, really. So she's going to intervene and and they end up as a couple. They stay in a relationship till their early 20s. Yeah. He, like, come on, he can he could leave that. Oh, he could have. The person that she really lets down is Kathy. And she does really let her down. Yeah, she does. She's and a she's, shit friend. I'm not saying she's, she's a, like, a horrible, horrible character. friend to her. She's a really, really shit friend. And, like, she's, she's mean about it as well. But I just think she gets a really rough ride in that she's, like, painted as being such the bad guy. Many years after she's been in a relationship with someone who has stayed with her... And that tips it, I think, you know. I think it tips it. I just think she shouldn't... Her her initial bad choice and being a bad friend is awful. But then later on, like, we're talking five or six years later, 
actually Kerry Mulligan's character, Kathy, still swooning after someone who is going out with her, yeah. her mate... I think it tips it. I don't think it is all Ruth's fault and it's very but much Ruth painted. Ruth is horrible it. to her because she doesn't just like take her boy, as it were, which is the 14-year-old thing. She continues to be a massive bitch to her. She constantly reminds her that she doesn't have a boyfriend. She's not part of a couple. She should feel left out. And she does say a number of really unpleasant things to her. I'm not saying she's a likeable character. I just think she got a lot more shit than she deserves. Well, she be, carries a lot more blame than I think is hers. To be fair, in the book, Ruth is a lot worse person than she comes across in this, I would say. And I would say that Tommy is a lot more substantially broken person than he comes across in this. But, yes, I, I dislike Ruth intensely, not because she does the, oh, she stole my boyfriend thing, but that she then goes about to try and belittle Kathy at every opportunity that she can. Yeah, I think she's an unpleasant person. I still don't think it's all her fault. No, I didn't say it was. I just said no, I no, really dislike her. No, no, but the film says it is. Yeah, the film... Well, they, they don't know if the film does. They do. Yeah, he does. He does. Yeah, I, I found that problematic. Yeah. Anyway, should we talk about some themes in this? I thought what was interesting about it was, number one, the rich-poor analogy that kind of you could, you could extrapolate from this. Obviously, these have been cloned and we don't have cloning, but we do have a situation now that exists in the world about, you know, I don't think we're quite, we're not legally selling organs yet, but, you know, there's a lot of going abroad for things. Oh, yeah, there's a huge black market. For all sorts of stuff, for... For surrogacy, there is a black market for, in which basically you are renting a womb. There's also a black market in breast milk. There is all sorts of things, and it's always women who end up paying the price for it. Yeah, I didn't think it was a massive reach at all. No. I mean, it's horrific. That's the, the, the film... It's almost a horror movie, I think. A very, very gentle, very restrained, isn't it? Horror movie, Mm. particularly because it's all that muted colours. And yeah, very restrained is a good word for it. But it's it's horrific because I can see it happening. I can I can absolutely imagine it happening because the the rich absolutely feed off the poor right now anyway. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. That's how it feels. It feels like it could be our dystopian yeah. future. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. And it, it, I don't think it will be clones for us. It will just be let's go at the third world and and when I say rich and poor, I don't even mean rich and poor in this country. I mean you know, first world and the rest of the world. Yeah, I agree with you. Just stripping it for parts, as it were. The other thing is the other question of science, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should, which, again, when you look at some of the shit, that, that, now how true any of it is, I don't know, but some of the shit that's been said about Epstein, including him trying to engineer his own master race with his own sperm, impregnating people, yeah, and wow. transhumanism and that sort of thing. You think, yeah, I, 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 it's always worth us questioning just because you can. Well, it doesn't mean you I should. I mean, if there's any time we should listen to Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. <laughs> well, because actually it's interesting is when they, when Kira Knightley is in the state she is at the end, trying to be less spoilery, but... She looks thin even for yeah. Kira Knightley. And they go off on a day trip. They're talking about Hailsham, where the school slash home that yeah. they were in. And they and she says that she's heard that it's been closed down. And that basically, you know, things have got worse, the clones now. And now they're, they're like battery hens. Yeah. And you think that's kind of a great example of, you know, the best intentions. Even, even piss poor intentions, like trying to, like, basically rearing these children for parts. Even they now start to look like they were actually quite nice compared to what is now happening like 20 years down the line. I think we can just look at farming as well. You know, it isn't that far away. So it's incredible that they managed to make it so funny. Couldn't (laughs) stop laughing. It's not, there's no lols to be had. There's not. Um, And the last thing to say is that the sort of interesting point at which you look at and you think, (sighs) with the sort of passive nature in which some people accept their fate, and I think that's probably what's the most interesting thing about Never Let Me Go. Because there are points in it when you think, why don't they just run away? Yep, I, was, I said why, that out loud to the television Why don't times. they just run away? And then they, they've been brainwashed from a very young age. If you look, when the ball goes out of grounds, Tommy won't go and get yeah, it. Yeah, they are chipped as well, though. 
They do a little thing and they, they beep in every yeah. time they come back into the house. But to what degree, like, that might just be able to be cut out of them. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It, it's because, I mean, I saw a lot of people tweet, including David Lammy tweeting this weekend, Margaret Atwood's quote about Choo-choo. about the Constitution and how people didn't react. And I think that's probably what the most interesting thing about Never Let Me Go is, the placid nature with which they just accept their fate. Because this film doesn't have that. You remember when Jen said, why is there always one person who rises up? And Yeah. They, and it doesn't have, have it. that. It's just... Well, it does. It has Miss Lucy almost. She's the one who tells the kids yeah. earlier than they would find out. But it doesn't have one of them. No. In any way that rises up and does it. They have these funny little ideas. Um, Donald Gleeson, there's another like name that is a lot more famous now, has heard this story. It's really crushingly sad, isn't it? Because it's it's this really infantile fantasy yeah. that they all like feed off. And you just think people your age should know that's just bullshit. But they they haven't been raised like that. But in the end, they just they just Monica Dolan's character says like, you know, that that she thinks that that Ruth wants to complete, and then she says to Kathy in it. And when they want to, they usually do. And it's that. That that that's interesting. I think that concept of you know, just giving up, just yeah. genuinely just giving up. And if it's depressing, maybe the answer from Never Let Me Go is don't fucking give up. Cut the chip out of your arm. Never don't give up. Never and just run into the street. Is there a Cassandra moment? Well, I suppose all of those things. Maybe I don't know. It's difficult to say, isn't it? Because it's. Because of the way it's done with that kind of sort of 1970s jaundice look, you kind of think, oh, it's the past. It's, it's quite clever in that you think, oh, this is, you know, this stuff happened in the 70s. But so you haven't got that high tech, hard, like white metal look that science fiction usually comes with. Mm-hmm. It comes with yeah. the sort of odd muted hues. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think there's one? I think we're past it. I think the Cassandra moment is... Don't faff with nature for our own ends. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was the 40s we learnt that, or didn't learn that, wasn't it? We just don't seem to be learning any lessons, Hannah. We don't. Did you like it, though? I thought it was horrific, but beautifully done. Yeah, it made me cry. I knew the story before I watched it. I like You can't really avoid it when it's been around for 10 years. Yeah, I did. Like's really funny word on this kind of yeah. film, isn't it? Uh I found it really scary. I don't think we're that far removed from it. And it just reminded me how appalling humans are to fellow humans. It's, it's awful. How many uh, how many Arnie's are we giving it? It seems weird to rate it in Arnie's, but we, we've we've got a theme. We're sticking to yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it should be in Dolly the Sheeps or something. How many Dolly the Sheep? I think um, that's more crass, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, I think it's got some flaws, but that is... Like I say, if you get the impression that Ruth was a nicer person than I did, I don't... No, no, I don't think she's a nicer person. I just think she is given all of the blame when it isn't all her fault. Okay, in that case, it's not as good as the book. So, four. Okay. And what about, like, the predictions? Yeah, I think it's pretty spot on. Yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it? Let's give it a five. Oh, God. Oh, it's horrific. Can we watch something lively and fun and, like, unrealistic? Let's watch Robocop. Yes. Standard issue for all women.